You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour. Robinhood is launching an index of the top stocks traded on its platform. Will that drive more retail investors to it? We're going to ask a top Robinhood exec. Plus, NBA champion Andre Iguodala talks to us about what he's taking from the court to venture capital. My conversation with the basketball star about everything from diversity in tech to NFTs and sports betting. And we all know about Bored Apes, but what about Moonbirds? Is that one new to you? We are talking to Proof Collective's Kevin Rose about the future of NFTs. All of that in a moment, but first, Robinhood announcing a new index. This will offer a snapshot, a monthly snapshot of the top 100 stocks its users are holding with the most quote unquote conviction. The company says customer conviction in a stock will be measured by how highly concentrated it is across portfolios. Robinhood head of investment strategy, Stephanie Guild, joins us now. So talk to us about the methodology behind this, Stephanie, and the end goal. Yeah, I think you know we've brought in a whole new generation of investors, or we helped do that, right? Over 20 million investors, and with it came a narrative that wasn't fair. Um, you know, we're not just our investors are not just meme stockholders, and so when we looked through the data, we saw that there was actually a lot of really interesting themes, and they are holding on to or investing in things that are um, things that you and I might invest in for the long term, um, and so we wanted to bring that narrative and, and be able to show it to not only the world but also give information to our customers about it. So some of the top stocks are some of the things that we think of as quote-unquote meme stocks. What do you think has been unfair about the discussion about what's traded on Robinhood's platform? Well, I think when you also look at the other ones, right, you've got Amazon, Apple, um, Google's been at the top. There's a lot of companies that are in our daily lives, and that's no different than generations of investors have been investing in, right? Like the the things that you know and use every day. Um, I think the other thing is that you you when you look through a lot of the data below the top ten, what you do see is, for example, um, a theme of 
investing in electric vehicles. And if this year has not shown you anything um, about the importance of adopting electric vehicles over time, I don't know what, what couldn't. How do you expect investors to use the data from this index? I think for them, it's just a way to say, like, what are investors or customers um, or people like me investing in? What are, you know, how are they positioned relative to me? Um, and right now, it's just going to be a snapshot on a monthly basis, but there may be other ways that we can offer it to our customers to help inform them in the future. Right. That was my next question. I mean, could we see a, a you know, weekly, daily, hourly um, list of the top 10 or top 100? I don't know if it's going to be updated that often, but I think we could in the future potentially bring it in app, for example, and share it with our customers. Um, if you own that particular stock, you'll see maybe perhaps what the weighting of that stock is in our own index, um, and maybe even compare your performance to it. You mentioned electric cars. Talk to us about some of the other early data that you're seeing. What are you learning about investors from this data? I think other things I've seen over time, especially when we look back at the history of the index, it goes back to about January 2020, um, is that our customers have been relatively good at timing some of the more tactical uh, things that have been out in the market. For example, in um, you know in COVID, they were investing in um, the Pelotons, for example, and, and the Zooms. Um, that has dissipated quite a bit. They were investing in uh, mortgage companies. You know, when when interest rates were super low, and uh, you know the housing boom was happening. They were investing in the likes of Rocket and Wells Fargo. Um, a lot of that stuff has dissipated in the index. And what they are investing in is, I'd say, stuff that's sort of longer term for the future. Um, a lot of, for example, financial services companies are not necessarily, you know, all the the banks that have been around forever. It's a lot of some of the new, um, you know, new ways that we might see finance evolve. And that's because our, our customers are, you know, 32 years old on average, um, and so they have time. And and why not invest in things that you know longer term can help build wealth. So why introduce this now at a time of a lot of uncertainty in the market going into an economic downturn and you know obviously a lot of questions about how the platform is used. I think we're, we wanted to do it because one, as I said before, like the narrative has been unfair. Our investors aren't just making you know crazy YOLO decisions. A lot of them have learned from this re recent downturn and are turning their eye toward how how can I build long-term wealth for myself? And our platform, you know, really helps you get started uh, with that. And we want to grow with our customers. And having this information available to us and being able to track it can also help us um, understand our customers customers better and, and give them what they need over time. All right. Uh, Stephanie Guild, Robinhood's head of investment strategy. We'll continue to track those uh, now that they're out. Thank you for joining us Thank to you. explain. Coming up, how venture capitalists are changing their strategy amid a market downturn. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. 
And Grammarly's personalised on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. downturn is slashing startup valuations leading to smaller IPOs or no IPOs in some cases and less venture capital activity. How long does it last? Amber Bhattacharya of Maverick Ventures, Managing Director, joining us now. Amber, how long do you think it lasts? I've heard two to three years for this downturn. Well, great to have, great to be on the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I wish I had that crystal ball in terms of how long it, it will last, but we're certainly in the middle of it now. I think that the catalysts have been, you know, the, the raising of the interest rates, uh, I think part of the bubble being popped that we were in last year. But I think it's also presents an opportunity for a lot of startups, um, particularly ones that have, have good balance sheets, ones that actually have great unit economics. And I think that's where a lot of folks are focusing now is, you know, are there real fundamentals that are driving business progress? And that's where I think the attention has shifted away from high growth, high burn, and other things that were really being funded last year. So I've heard massive layoffs coming, valuation write-downs. What we've seen so far isn't the least of it. Would you agree? I, th I think it started. I think in, in the beginning of the year, there was a big wait-and-see attitude. You know, would this be a temporary blip? Would the, would, would the market snap back really fast? I think in the second half of the year, particularly post-summer, I think reality is setting in. Uh, I think we have seen many startups take down their burn rate. 
both in terms of layoffs, uh, contractors, real estate costs, things of that sort. I think secondly, we've seen a lot of companies shore up their balance sheets. Uh, and while they do that, they're they're saying, hey, you know, the, the path towards profitability is now much more important than the path towards higher growth. I think the and then third thing, and you mentioned valuations, I think I think there's a reality setting in that oftentimes for maybe not the top companies, but for the average startup, uh, you know, there, there's a reality check on the market. And I think what we're seeing there is for a lot of uh, a lot of companies that are good companies with good unit economics and good fundamentals, they're saying, hey, we want to raise a more modest amount of, of money at a more modest valuation than last year. And that, that that's a great path. And But for companies that need money, need capital, I think that's where you're starting to see valuation uh, declines, structure for deals and things of that sort. Is there a lot of dry powder just sitting on the sidelines because of all these funds that raise so much money and now don't have as many places to deploy it? And are VCs waiting for valuations to fall further before getting in? There is a lot of dry powder. I think that's when, when, when you talk to a lot of investors in the private equity space and in the venture capital space, uh, a lot of folks were very fortunate to have raised in the last few years. The pace of capital deployment has slowed down. I think there's two things that are happening um, right now, and I'll, and I'll bifurcate the early stage market and the growth equity markets. In the early stage market, I think business there has continued um, you know, as, as, as expected. Um, there's great innovation happening out of a lot of um, scientific labs, out of a lot of uh, engineers who are leaving, you know, leaving other startups, leaving, you know, the big corporations who have their ideas, and that just continues at the normal pace. Um, and there's lots of research saying that in these moments of economic downturn, are the time that more resilient companies are being built. And so that that's one right. one thing we've seen. I think on the other hand, for for more of the kind of the growth equity, you know, growth growth stage companies. Um, you know, I think you are seeing, um, you know, you are seeing the pace slow down there. I think people want to see better fundamentals and unit economics than, than they saw before. The hedge fund Tiger Global was such a big player in, in Silicon Valley over the last few years. It's also been blamed for inflating a lot of these valuations because they had a lot of money to deploy. What do you make of that criticism? Well, I think... Um, you know, you know, more more broadly speaking, I think there was a lot of money in the ecosystem last year, whether it was from folks like Tiger or or SoftBank or others. Um, and what what they what they did was, you know, they played a very important role in financing these companies. Um, now, what remains to be seen is, you know, the role that they will that they will play and other growth equity players will play in terms of now getting these companies on a path towards profitability, on a path towards an IPO, maybe not and maybe not in 2022, but in future years. Um, and how they adjust their their mindset, how they adjust the, the support that they're giving their portfolio companies, I think is going to be very telling, actually, in the coming years. And so we look forward to working with them and, and other investors in, in that realm to see, you know, how do you build long-term sustainable businesses? That That's the main goal. Gary Tan, uh, formerly of Initialized, who's been a guest on this show many times, uh, is has been tapped to run Y Combinator. And, you know, of course, there have been many Y Combinator startups born in a downturn, like Airbnb, like Stripe. What do you think the future is of a uh, 
accelerator like Y Combinator in a down market when there are other accelerators out there now, many other accelerators trying to do the same thing? It's, um, you know, the last two days have been the Y Combinator demo day. And so uh, we've been, you know, knee deep in looking at all the companies in there. Uh, you know, we've had a very strong relationship with Y Combinator before. We think it's one of the crown jewels of global innovation. Um, every every six months, there's, you know, hundreds of companies that present and you you just have this feeling that there's within that, you know, within that realm, there's a couple of those that are going to be these enduring industry defining companies. Um, one of the things that we've noticed in this Y Combinator, um, you know, batch from from uh, from just the last couple of days, uh, you can notice certain macro trends. And I think this kind of this this gets to your question. One thing that we've gotten very excited about is the increased uh, use of artificial intelligence in companies that are that are in Y Combinator. And I think that's at one of the forefronts of trends in, in the coming decade. And if you just we, we ran the math um, earlier today about you know what percentage of companies are using artificial intelligence to build um, in this Y Combinator batch and between AI and machine learning, it's almost a quarter of companies are doing this. And if you compare this to even two two batches or sorry two years ago, um, that's a 300% growth of um, of companies doing that. And the only time we've seen that before is you know eight to ten years ago when you started seeing cloud companies and startups being built on the cloud. And you saw the growth of cloud computing, mm -hmm. AWS and, and, and Google and, and Microsoft. And so when, when you come to think about Y Combinator, uh, you start seeing these macro trends as well. And I think that's, uh, that, that's really what we're seeing there. All right, uh, interesting stuff. Amber Bhattacharya, Maverick Ventures, Managing Director. Uh, Amber, thank you for joining us. As we're entering a potentially lengthy economic downturn, I caught up with NBA champion and Mastery Ventures general partner Andre Iguodala about where he's placing his bets and how the macro environment is impacting his strategy. Take a listen. For me personally, um, you know, earlier stage, which is where I'm investing, uh, you know, about 80 percent of my time and resources, um, they haven't been affected as much. So if you look at, you know, pre-CC Series A, um, they haven't been affected as much, whereas the growth stage has been some uncertainty. Um, you've seen a lot of down rounds uh, coming out as of late, and I think those have been affected uh, more than any other sector. So where I'm at, the deals are still pretty hot. Everyone's trying to get in. You know, um, you're placing your bets earlier. There's bigger returns, but there's also uh, more risk. So for me, uh, still full throttle and, and still uh, chasing uh, the earlier deals. Now, at Mastery, I know you say you want to ensure diversity when it comes to investing, to governance, to talent. What does that look like to you, and how do you think you can personally influence it, given your success as an athlete? I just think holding, you know, companies like the aggregators, um, you know, making sure that they're uh, doing their uh duty into helping build the pipeline or, or just looking for the right talent. So what we've been able to do is identify uh, a black founded uh, talent search firm and using that firm to make sure that we're able to, you know, build the right pipelines uh, from, you know, HBCUs, um, higher education um, institutions um, with a 
you know, with the talent and making sure that these companies are uh, building the right culture um, is, is one thing to, you know, hire minorities, but it's another thing to make sure those minorities are having success within that culture. So, you know, you got to build the right culture so they can have success once they work there. We found that that's been an issue as well. So um, holding these companies accountable is one thing and, you know, building out, um, you know, projections or building out, um, you know, pillars to make sure that, you know, this is what it should look like. You know, this is a percentage of uh, minorities that you should have within your companies uh, throughout building your companies as we're investing earlier and seeing them through and through. I recently spoke to Serena Williams about her foray into venture capital investing, and she she said that a lot of people look at her and think, you know, I'm just doing this as a hobby, but really, it's a passion. And when it comes to, you know, what she can bring to the table from the court, she said, I like winning, and I know how to win. What do you mm -hmm. think you bring from the court to investing that's unique, that traditional Silicon Valley venture capitalists don't have? Well, winning in, in there's similarities in terms of winning um, as uh, the percentage of uh, humans with within the sport or with this just in competing. And I think athletes and, and uh, venture capital investors, you know, this is it's really hard to win. And it's only a small percent that win at a high clip. And Serena fits right into that. I feel like uh, I've been fortunate enough to be around Steph Curry, so I fit into it as well. And for me, it's just <laughs> identifying, for me, it's identifying talent, um, identifying how to make uh, best use of that talent. You know, I've been in situations where I've been, you know, the focal point of the organization. Uh, I've also been in a situation where I've been a six man and we've had success. And so understanding how the ego works, um, what I've learned throughout my journey in tech is, you know, the ego is big in tech is the same way it's big in sports. And, you know, you got some of the brightest um, founders and you got some of the brightest uh, VCs and there's battles in, you know, stakeholders with with the founders in terms of the direction of the company and just being able to make sure that you know all the egos are you know thrown out the window and we're all on the same page and how do we build a company efficiently responsibly um you know with the with the consumer uh in mind as well you're also the co-host of a podcast called point forward where you're interviewing top athletes musicians entrepreneurs you've been making some waves i believe joe lacob said gotten a little trouble with something he said on your podcast. Um, I'm curious what trends you're seeing in the media landscape, given this new ability for people like yourself to just go straight to their audiences directly. Mm -hmm. Well, I think sports, as you can see with some of these, um, you know, some of the TV deals and uh, the, the rights um, to, you know, whether it's NFL, NBA, um, and then you just look at the deal that Big Ten did, uh, was astronomical, you know, uh, a great deal done by uh, Kevin Warner, Kevin Warren over at uh, who runs the Big Ten. Um, and you're starting to see in these sports has become actual media companies um, with, you know, live sports being you, you can, you know, you can pretty much gauge what your viewership is going to be and how many eyeballs the advertisers can come across. And I feel like, um, athletes are starting to understand their influence and being able to leverage their brands as well and 
you know, understanding that there, there's not just the financial side, but also the branding side of you going straight to the consumer, which is what streaming is. And you've been able to talk to your fan base and um, whether it's you're trying to monetize it or just build that base of, of, of fans. And, you know, that's what we talk about with Web3. That's what we talk about with NFTs and, you know, the direct to consumer part of, of the business coming into media and sports as well. video will have exclusive streaming rights starting September 15th for Thursday Night Football, kicking off an 11-year, $13 billion deal that could forever alter the television landscape. This is the first time a streaming service has had exclusive rights to NFL games in the United States and a big challenge to major networks that have dominated sports for generations. Here to discuss is Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, who wrote about this for Bloomberg's Big Take. So, Lucas, this is a huge deal. If you want to watch Thursday Night Football, you're going to have to go on to Amazon Prime Video. How many viewers is this going to drive for Prime? And is the bet going to be worth it? Well, Amazon is is estimating that in the first year, it'll probably attract about 12 million viewers a week. That's below what the typical Thursday night broadcast has has attracted, but much higher than I think the number of people using Amazon on your on your average Thursday. I mean, the thing to remember for them is this is a very long term bet. It's useful. It's you know, they, they see football both as a, a benefit for their prime members. It's the big reason they're spending billions of dollars on entertainment. And it becomes very hard for us to see if that number really pencils out, but it also could provide a huge boost to their advertising business, which has been one of the fastest growing sectors of the company. And, you know, football is the hottest property on television. A $13 billion deal for 11 games a season. Is it, is it worth it? Well, Amazon is paying less than other broadcasters pay for football. I mean, that's the thing to, to remember here is that the price of sports rights has gotten absolutely ludicrous over the past several years. Uh, you know, it's I find it really hard to answer the is it worth it question with Amazon just because it feels like they're playing a different game than most of these other companies. You know, I think uh, when a, a CBS Paramount buys football rights, the, the bet is that that show itself will probably lose money for them, but it brings so many people into CBS uh, that it, it makes money for them overall. And without football, they would be far less valuable to the cable operators that need to carry the channel. It's not a perfect comparison, but it's a little bit similar to Amazon, where they're spending a lot of money to bring people into their ecosystem. The problem is that if you want to watch any of these games on a streaming platform, it is kind of confusing. For example, I like baseball on Friday nights. I have to go to Apple, but only on Friday nights, not on any other night. How does that confusion smooth out over the longer term when you have all of these different networks and then all of these different streaming platforms getting just smaller pieces of a much larger pie? Well, first of all, I can't believe this is the first time I'm hearing that you're a baseball fan because I'm a huge <laughs> baseball fan. So this is just good information to have. But uh, baseball is a lot more complicated than the Please NFL. Please don't use I it think. against me. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't, other than the fact that you're probably a Giants fan, and that is bad for me. But uh, I'm the... an A's fan, Lucas, an Oakland A's fan. I like okay. the Giants when the A's aren't playing them. Um, right. Let's football, get that straight. Football is a little bit easier than baseball. Baseball ha is on regional sports networks. It's on a bunch of different networks. 
you know, Thursday night football is only going to be on Amazon. There's a little bit of, you know, confusion in that if you're in a bar, you'll be watching direct TV, but nobody's paying attention to how they're getting it. If you're in the market of the team playing, you may be able to watch it on local TV. But you're right that this requires a lot of marketing on Amazon's part. You know, they're not used to spending a ton of money to market their entertainment shows. They figure that people who are just sort of coming to Amazon anyways will watch the things that they have to offer. Because of how much money they've spent both on football and on their new Lord of the Rings show, they're starting to market uh, in a way that they really haven't before. And the, the nice thing about it is this will be one of the first times where we get weekly viewership numbers, I think the first time actually, where we get weekly viewership numbers from Amazon. So we'll be able to see real time each week how the viewership is and whether it's able to attract an audience that's comparable to TV. And that's what the NFL is going to want to know, right? They're making a big bet here. The NFL has only been available on linear networks for the most part uh, for its history. Uh, and they've now given one of their flagship programs to a streaming service. It's the first time they've done that. It's really the first time a major sports league in the U.S. has done it. Uh, and it is a, a big test of, sort of where we see the future of media going. All right, Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw. You can check out Lucas's big take in Bloomberg Business Week. Obviously, a lot of evolving and moving parts here. I do want to get to some breaking news that is crossing the terminal now. Advisors for Elon Musk have apparently written to Twitter about a separate basis to end that deal, that, of course, $44 billion buyout deal uh, that Musk is trying to walk away from. Uh, Musk saying, and his advisors saying, they became aware of facts that they believe serve as a basis for terminating that deal. This is coming in an amended 13D filing. We're going to continue to, to follow uh, these headlines. They're just crossing the terminal now. Uh, but either way, uh, an additional attempt for Elon Musk to get out of buying Twitter. Continuing our conversation on streaming now, I want to bring in George Pine, founder and CEO of Bruin Capital. Bruin has the rights to run NFL Game Pass worldwide for the league. So if you want to watch the Super Bowl in Hong Kong, London, or Brazil, it's through Game Pass. So, George, I know you were listening to our conversation with Lucas earlier. Some people are calling this, uh, you know, move towards more streaming platforms, having more uh, sports rights, an inflection point, like an inflection point in broadcast history. Do you think it's fair to say that at this point or too soon? Emily, thanks for having me. I think it's a little too soon to say that. I'd say they're around the hoop per se, but I don't think it's an inflection point. I think you're seeing more activity. I mean, Apple with NFL Plus, Amazon with the Thursday Night Football, Apple with Major League Soccer. But still, they're, they're kind of not the major moves. No one's unseating Fox or CBS or the NBA or the NFL. So I, I, they're around the hoop in a way they haven't been before. But I wouldn't quite say it's an inflection point. Okay. So how long do you think then that this land grab is going to take to play out? And what does it look like? on the other side. Do streaming platforms have more power, have uh, more power over the sports that, you know, so many millions of people want to watch? Or do the traditional networks hold on to a lot of that power? Well, I think it's twofold. One, the money's in the old media, right? It's the sports are the most valuable thing for old media. I mean, like 95%, 95 of the top 100 shows on television are sports, enormously valuable content. And I break the streamers into two groups. I mean, Paramount Plus, Peacock, and ESPN Plus, those are tied to linear television. And so that's a, uh, an attempt where you're able to use both streaming and linear in a package. And it's quite different than Amazon and Apple, 
who are really using it, as Lucas said, almost as a sponsorship, a way that augment their other business. And so Amazon and Apple are quite different than Paramount Plus, ESPN Plus, and others like in Peacock. So there are two strategies. And, um, you know, it's more seamless on the media side because that content is so valuable. And then on the what I call the retail product side, it's still valuable, but it's valuable because it's really driving awareness to another core product. And, and you could choose Thursday Night Football or another form of entertainment. But if you're a media company, sports is, is irreplaceable and invaluable. And, and the value proposition to a media company is far greater than it would be to a retail product. Now, Bruin has the rights to NFL Game Pass. The league is also pursuing NFL Plus. What's your take on the league pursuing its own streaming platform? I think it's quite bright, you know, because they're trying to reach the youth. They're also you have in the mix here, the young consumers are where the streamers are. So if I'm the NFL, I'm trying to reach that audience, whether it's through NFL Plus, will be my, someday the Sunday ticket package, Amazon. Those are critical consumers to grow the game. So I think it's smart to try and have as many touch points with the consumer, particularly the young consumer. It's, it's really good. And then internationally, it's tough to watch NFL all around the world. And so, of course, NFL Game Pass really serves that purpose to feed people NFL content, you know, for us, in our case, in 181 countries. So what does the league making these changes, working towards this evolution, what does that mean for Game Pass and for your business? Well, for us, we're outside the U.S., so I think there's a di it's a different approach. Game Pass International is really a growth engine for, for international. It's a, you're marketing to consumers one person at a time. So I think international and domestic are quite, are, are quite different, uh, and different strategies, different All objectives. Right. Uh, Game Pass International is a very important part of the marketing outside the United States for the NFL, as is uh, NFL Plus in the U.S., but it's, you have more, more resources inside the U.S. and less outside the U.S. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us ahead of a big football weekend here in the United States. Bruin Capital founder and CEO George Pine, appreciate you stopping by. We're going to continue our coverage of sports streaming Monday. Marie Donahue, Amazon Vice President of Global Sports Video, uh, just four days out from Thursday Night Football, taking center shade. She's going to join us to talk about Prime Video and this big bet that Amazon is making. Plus, tonight, Bloomberg premiering Bloomberg's The Lineup. Kaylee Lines and Damian Sassauer are going to give you the latest on betting trends and talk about the biggest players across the industry. 7 p.m. Eastern, Fridays. Coming up, all things NFTs and tech with Proof Collective co-founder and serial tech entrepreneur, Kevin Rose. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. 
And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year, that's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. It's time now for our crypto report, and I want to take a look now at NFTs with Proof Collective, which recently announced a big raise. $50 million led by Andreessen Horowitz, participation also from 776, that's Alexis Ohanian's venture capital firm. I want to talk about what it all means for Collective's expansion plans with its co-founder and CEO, Kevin Rose, who of course also founded the social news site Dig back in the day. He was a general partner at Google Ventures, a longtime angel investor. He backed Twitter, Facebook, Square, and is the host of the Proof and Modern Finance Podcasts. He joins us now along with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik in New York. Kevin, welcome. Shanali, take it away. Kevin, I'm really Thanks curious. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're really curious here because obviously there has been this crypto winter, yet you were able to raise a Series A here in a world where NFT collections at large have been very volatile this year. What yeah. is it that makes an NFT collection valuable and how much of it has to do with the community rather than the asset? themselves yeah I mean a lot of it is certainly the community and the strength of that community and you know how active and engaged they are in what you're building because you know as a company we're just a handful of people and and really it's how we deputize our community to go out and build on our behalf that makes us so powerful 
So I think what you're seeing with what we're doing at Proof with Moonbirds is really the birth of kind of a decentralized brand in which the community has the keys to the castle. They get to be the ones to go out and decide how to use the IP and how to monetize it. It's a complete flip of, say, something like a Disney, where they're the ones that hold the IP close to the their own. Um, they hold it internally, and they never really release it. So they are the ones that get to monetize the entire thing, and this is a chance to completely flip that model. Flipping the model, but what about what it means relative to other NFT collections? What sets apart Moonbirds, for example, from the Bored Apes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you really have to find your community. Like every community inside of the world of PFPs, these profile photo pictures, um, they have different vibes and different uh, kind of core tenets of who, what they stand for. We are always this idea of this love of an appreciation of art, this curation with a point of view. That's kind of what we've always uh, done at Proof. We're not about getting into this crazy um, market of, of the muddy waters of flipping NFTs or how to quake make a quick 5x and we're long-term builders i mean we've been doing this for 20 plus years in terms of who we are as entrepreneurs having built many businesses over that a period of time and you know many of the uh, members on our team are ex-google and so it's really uh, a level of maturity that's coming to the table here to build this business and i think people have a lot of confidence in in who we are um, as that team you know the, this is largely an anonymous space where there's a lot of products and some great projects actually that launch with anonymous founders but in a world where there's this uncertainty and there can certainly be sometimes what they call rug pulls where you never know if a project just disappears uh, you know, six months later, uh, we've kind of put everything out there and said, we're serious about this. We're going to go raise venture capital and we're going to be a team that's going to st stick around for many years to come. You know, critics also say here that if you look at what NFTs are, to what extent is there utility behind them? How do they go beyond just being digital art and into something that has a broader purpose. What do you say to critics like that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a new, very new idea and concept for people to wrap their head around where for the very first time, it, it, you actually have and collect something that is uh, a, co a core piece of ownership of a project. So oftentimes, as these projects become more and more popular, value accrues back to these NFTs as uh, collectible pieces of art. And that is different in that if you're dealing with a traditional media company, you're just a consumer. Like if you go out and you watch a Star Wars movie or you go and, and you somehow um, uh, participate in that experience, yes, they're great media experiences, but there's nothing really to walk away with there that is a part of that project. And here you have these different members of the community coming together and taking this artwork that they actually own and going off and doing very creative things with it. So they can they can figure out when and how they want to monetize it. They can remix it. And you're deputizing a community of brand builders to go out there and blow this up and get it more and more exposure in new and creative ways that you never thought possible as a centralized organization. So the bet here really is to say, we think there's a different way to build a media business here. And it's not one where it's a handful of people in a boardroom that get to make the decisions, but it's really empowering the community to go out and do big and bold things on our behalf. And we're just kind of the ones that are making sure that the, the business is running and that we have are delivering solid products in, in conjunction with our community members. Kevin, given you're so steeped in the earlier social iterations of the internet, for our viewers who are less crypto-native, 
Can you explain why you think blockchain technology and Web3 really is the future and what happens to these social platforms like Facebook and Twitter uh, that we all know now in this future? Do they continue to exist? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because there is a lot of um, certainly the Web3 environment and, and community behind it are a lot more um, privacy focused and there is, is certainly this idea that we can come in and reinvent a lot of the te technology that's underpinning a lot of these businesses in a way that doesn't put the consumer as the product, that doesn't sell their eyeballs, that doesn't sell their personal information. So that's a really exciting new direction to move the web. And it's early days. So what we're building here is kind of the infrastructure and underpinnings of all of that. And you'll see that be spread across a whole series of different categories. So our art and digital collectibles being the obvious one here with NFTs and, and rewriting the way that artists get paid with royalties enforceable by the blockchain and just a lot of really exciting things that are happening there, which I certainly believe that it's pretty clear now that the future of a lot of art is going to go in the form of NFTs. But certainly there's going to be the same reimagination and reinvention of classic Web 2 properties in a way that puts the consumer in more control and gives them a piece of that upside so they're not just a product of a big uh, or a massive like Fortune 500 company, but really they are actually part of that ownership via tokens or, or, or via NFTs. So it's a pretty exciting new new change. You know, there's a lot about to happen in the next couple of weeks with the Ethereum merge. I guess my question is, do you think the gatekeepers of the Internet today, Meta, Twitter, Google, do they survive in this new world? Or is all this new technology a, a major threat to them? Certainly, there are going to be companies like any major shift, like we saw with Web 1.0 going to Web 2.0 or whatever it may be. There are companies that that get it, that understand it at a core level. I would put, um, you know, Jack Dorsey in that camp, right? Because all the things that they've done at Square uh, and everything they're building at Block, I think that's they're, they're an amazing group of innovators. They understand blockchain technology at a very, very core level. Um, there are others that are playing in this realm, meaning that if you take a look at Instagram, how they embraced and enabled NFTs now to be displayed. But it's, it's more like a bolt-on and not really a retooling and rethinking of the product at its core. I don't think long-term the kind of bolt-on, we're just going to do this because it's the hot thing of the week, I don't think that's going to play well. And it's really not the, the dramatic change that consumers, at least in the Web3 space, are looking for. And so um, for me, it's going to be a lot of new native companies built from the ground up that tackle these problems. So it's going to be brand new businesses that are being built right now that will probably in the next two to three years really emerge as some of the early winners. And so, you know, I would say the reason we went out and raised this round of financing um, with Andreessen is that we believe there's a better way to do a media business. And, and that really puts the consumers in control of, of, this, um, of these assets and really gives them a way to experience and, and collect digital collectibles that have never been done before. So that's what's exciting for us. But that's just one vertical of probably 15 that the blockchain is going to address and reimagine over the next few years. Fascinating. Well, it's great to hear about what you're doing now, Kevin Rose, CEO and co-founder of Proof Collective, along with our very own Shanali Basik. Thank you for stopping by.
few other stories we are watching. Tesla is considering building a battery-grade lithium refinery on the Gulf Coast of Texas. The company has filed a newly public application for tax breaks with the Texas Comptroller's Office, calling the proposed facility the first of its kind in North America. The electric car maker is also evaluating a site in Louisiana. And Amazon sellers are bracing for a bleak holiday shopping season. This has Inflation-bitten consumers are curbing their spending. Many merchants who sell more than half of the goods on the Amazon website are concerned they're going to be forced to cut prices to move a mountain of unsold inventory. This is an abrupt change from the previous two years when sellers were scrambling to get enough products into Amazon warehouses to meet all of that pandemic-fueled demand, despite chronic shortages that let them jack up prices. That's a trend we're going to continue to follow. And that does it for this Friday edition of Bloomberg Technology Monday. Really excited to have Marie Donahue, Amazon's Vice President of Global Sports Video, to talk about their $13 billion foray into the NFL. And tonight, Bloomberg premiering the lineup, Kaylee Lines and Damian Sassauer. We're going to give you the latest data on betting trends and talk to the biggest players in the industry. 7 p.m. Eastern, this is Bloomberg. Have a wonderful weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.